So thank you for doing this, for being a part of this. I'm convinced that uh, everyone will be inspired by your curiosity um, because the, the truth is everybody has questions. You guys just happen to be brave enough to go first. I guess I'm slightly confused as to why he would make the tree um, that they eat the fruit from, forgetting the name right now. Um, why would he make it if then they eat it and then everything goes bad? Like, did he, he like created the vice that led us to where we are now. So did he create evil or was it just like us because we're sinful and it was just bound to happen? Did he know that was going to happen? Like, there's just a lot that's like, if he had done something differently, would we be here? And why did he decide to do that? I don't know. But also, how could we ever understand like his motives for anything? Hey, everybody. We are thrilled that you are participating in today's service. And today we're talking about how to conquer discontentment. I was thinking about giving you all kinds of stats and data about all the discontentment, but it depressed me. So I just said, forget that. Instead, I want to share with you a story that I think really makes sense of Genesis chapters 1 to 11. Like, what is it? We know it's unique. What is it? And I think this story, at least for me, it helped. Maybe for you, it will help. In June 2017, I had something shocking, disturbing, frustrating happen to me. It was early in the morning, and I bent over to pick up something, and I sprung up really quick, and I was headed out into the hallway. Boom, I went down. I went down for the count. I passed out, but I didn't pass out kind of confused the doctors and it totally confused me because it's like my body passed out, but my mind was fully active and I laid there for 30 seconds and then I felt like the power came back in the rest of my body and I got up and I went to the doctor because it was so freaky. I actually didn't go to the doctor. I went to the hospital. Like they ran all these tests. Everything's fine. You're in good shape. There's, we find there's nothing wrong with you. You just had, you just had a situation where you passed out. You're all right. Go ahead live your life because everything looks great. It's like, okay. Later that day, I had a memorial service. And so I'm there in the sanctuary, ready, getting ready for the memorial service. I went back to the sound booth and I was talking to our sound tech. And I'm standing there at the booth and it has a high wall. And I'm standing there, I have my hands on the wall. I'm talking to him as all of a sudden it's like, whoosh, like I was on a boat that just got hit by a 20 foot wave. I felt like my whole body just, just flung to the side. It's like, oh my gosh, what happened? So somehow I, I soldiered through the memorial service and I went home and I called my doctor and I said, something is wrong with me. And from that point on, I struggled with something that could not be diagnosed for well over a year. Now, I want to describe to you. Some people said, well, you have a vertigo problem. It wasn't, it wasn't vertigo. Vertigo is when the room is spinning. Here's what I felt like. I felt like I was on a roller coaster. You've been to an amusement park before? I felt like I was on a roller coaster. One of those ones that are going really fast and curves and loops and everything. That's the way I felt all the time. And it got worse when I stood up. But even when I sat down, it was bad. So I couldn't, I couldn't preach anymore standing up. I had to sit on a stool. But here's the problem. As I'm sitting on a stool now, I want you to think about this. Next time you go to an amusement park, I want you to stand up in the roller coaster and try to give a speech. 
That's how I felt. I was holding on for dear life. Some Sundays on that stage, I was like, oh, because I felt like I was on this constant roller coaster. I was afraid of speaking. I was terrified of doing a wedding because in a wedding, you're, I mean, you go down and I felt like any second I was going down, you're going to just mess everything up. They'll never forget it. Well, I went to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. I saw some great doctors. I saw some not so great doctors, I'm afraid. I was seen by a team of neurologists up at Johns Hopkins. They are absolutely brilliant, but nobody was able to diagnose me. And then I went to, because I'm just looking for answers. I'm going everywhere, running, looking for answers. Somebody said, you got to go see this guy. This guy's great. I walked in. He said, tell me the problem. I got, this is after I've seen a dozen doctors, everybody. I started telling the problem. I started talking about the team of neurologists and what they found. He cut me off less than a minute in. He says, I know your problem. You need orthotics. I'm like, oh my gosh. What I'm telling you is, after over a year of searching for an answer, of searching for a diagnosis, I became so jaded. I was like, I'm never going to find an answer. There just isn't an answer. I kind of felt like some people feel about the Bible or about life. I guess there just aren't answers. I guess I just can't figure it out. I guess it's just never going to make sense. After a year of going through this, after a year of being terrified of standing up and even sitting down and preaching a sermon, after being terrified to do weddings, after all the mess I went through, I got a phone call. I almost didn't answer it because I didn't recognize the number. And it was somebody, they said they were a nurse. They said that I had been referred to them by my primary physician and they were with a program called Best Doctors. I was very suspicious. They said, we'd like to meet with you. We'd like to to talk to you, hear about what's going on. Well, I was, I'd been given so much time and so much energy. I was like, ah, this is going to be nothing. But I went. They wanted to meet me at my primary's office. I'm like, okay, well, maybe that's legitimate. I thought it was a scam. And I said, okay, you want to meet with me and then you want to call me every single week and you want to track with me? I mean, how much is this going to cost? Like, oh, no, no, no. You're, it's in, covered by your insurance. We want to help you. Here it comes. We want to diagnose you. We want to help to give you an accurate diagnosis. And I said, well, that's that's what I need because nobody's able to do that. So they collected information and every week for months, they kept calling me and collecting more. And they compiled every test I'd ever taken. And boy, I had taken a lot of them from every doctor I'd ever been to. And then one day I got a phone call from Massachusetts and they said, we need to talk to you about everything. And for two hours on the phone, I went through piece after piece after piece after piece. And then I heard nothing from them, nothing for months. And I just forgot about it because I was so jaded. There aren't any answers. I'm not going to be able to find an answer. And then I got a phone call one day. I almost didn't answer this call either because Oh, my caller ID, it said Cleveland. I don't know anybody from Cleveland, but I answered anyway. It was a doctor. And it sounded like he was running down a hallway, kind of out of breath. He's like, hey, this is Dr. So-and-so. You know, are you John Sly? Yes, I'm John Sly. Okay, I have your diagnosis. I'm like, okay, sure you do. Sure you do. He said, you have triple PD. I said, excuse me? You have triple PD, persistent postural perceptive dizziness. I am sending you the solution, the antidote, the answer to your problem. I said, oh, come on. He said, oh, yeah, I need you to do this and this, and it's going to solve the problem. He said, you got to go to your primary physician. I've sent him all the information. So I go to my primary, and I say, I have triple BD. He said, never heard of it. What is that? 
Like, oh my gosh, I am totally jaded. There's no way I have an answer to this. But I started on the routine that the primary gave me, according to the doctor from Cleveland. And within two weeks, presto, bang, it was over. Here's what Genesis 1 to 11 is about. It is about diagnosing the problem. Albert Einstein says it this way. If I had an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solution. Genesis 1 to 11 is the best doctor ever at diagnosing the problem of human nature. That's what it is. We'll get nowhere. We're going to be on the run, looking for solutions, trying to find it, going to this person, going to that person, going to this doctor, going to that doctor, sometimes going to people who say we need orthotics, being frustrated, looking for the answer, Genesis 1 to 11, accurately, incredibly, brilliantly diagnoses our problem. You can't look for the solution till you know exactly what the problem is. And today, we want to talk about sin. Now, no, don't turn your device off. I know that word carries a lot of baggage, but Genesis 2 and 3 dissects exactly what sin is. And I think you'll find this fascinating. I know that I did. Well, let's start reading. We're going to start in chapter two. This is what it says. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will certainly die. You know, a lot of people say to me, and I've thought this myself, have you thought this? I've had this question posed to me for many, many years, especially recently as we're going through Genesis. They say, why in the world would God put that tree there? I mean, if God was a good parent, wouldn't you want to set your children up for success? So if the tree is going to cause your downfall, why put the tree there? Is God tempting us? Is God mean? Is God evil? What is going on? Why did God put the tree there? God must be bad. That is very interesting. Well, I've been talking a lot about metaphor. And I know some of the question is to that is, well, what's metaphor and what's actual history? The Bible's filled with lots of history. Lots. Matter of fact, we're going to get into a bunch of history soon when we cross into Genesis chapter 12 and Abraham. There is so much history, confirmed history that's in the Bible. How do you figure out what is metaphor and what's history? Well, a lot of times you got to know what's going on in the biblical world. You got to understand the ancient Near East. You got to understand Hebrew. But then there's other things that are just obvious. They're obvious metaphors. The tree appears to be an obvious metaphor. There's an old saying we have. Many a parent has said this. Money doesn't grow on trees. Well, money doesn't grow on trees, but neither does life or knowledge of good and evil. They don't grow on trees. So it appears as if that this is probably, probably a metaphor because just like money doesn't grow on trees, neither does knowledge. I've never seen knowledge growing on trees before. So this appears to be that maybe it's an obvious metaphor. And again, Genesis 1 to 11 is diagnosing our problem. It's not telling us what happened back then. It's telling us what always happens according to human nature. It's not what they dealt with. It's about what I deal with and about what you deal with. And that's the brilliance of it.
It's telling us how to live because they were wisdom seekers. That's why the Bible says wisdom is supreme. By wisdom, the world was created. Seek wisdom. But with all you're getting, get wisdom. If it costs you, costs you gold or diamonds, whatever it costs, you want to make sure you get wisdom. That is the way they view it. And here's some profound wisdom here about what is sin and why sin causes so much discontent. We're going to dissect sin today. Now, as you think about this garden there, maybe, maybe possibly you could think about it this way. We all have a mental garden. I mean, I think that's why Jesus, his very first sermon in the book of Matthew, he says, repent, the kingdom of, ha- the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. Repent is a mind word. Repent means to change your mind, to think differently. That's probably why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed. How? Do you know how? If you do, put it in chat. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says again in 2 Corinthians 10, take every thought captive. We all clearly have a mental garden, all right? I'm not saying that the whole garden is a metaphor. I'm just saying what is totally clear is we all have a mental garden. Jesus says that. It's the changing of the mind. That's where repentance is. It happens in the mind. That's why Paul says it. It's a battle in the mind. And so this conversation we're getting ready to get into between the talking snake, I think. People say, well, is the talking snake a metaphor? I don't know, but I know I talk to the snake every day. (laughs) I know the snake is talking every day to me. And we see the effects of that conversation throughout the history of humanity. And that is what is incredibly fascinating. So let's read it. Let's read this conversation. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent, more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, notice this, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? What's the, what's the seed that the snake, the shrewd, subtle seed the snake is planting? God's not good. God's keeping fun from you. God's keeping something good from you. Now, where does that seed, that seed grows like Jack in the Beanstalk and it sprouts straight up the sky and it starts with this subtle hint that God is keeping something good from you. How many times growing up in church did I have friends say to me who didn't go to church, come on out with me. I'll show you where, where all the good happens. I'll show you how to have a real good time. Get away from that Bible. Get away from that church. The good time is found outside of the Bible church because God wants to rob us of all the fun. That's the thought. It's the same thing's being said right here. Here is where it all begins. The little seed is planted. And everybody, this is why millions and millions and millions of people have left the church. You know why? Because they say God is cruel. God is mean. God is like a bad parent. He puts a tree here setting us up for failure. Now, I've said this so many times, but I'm going to add something new to it here. I've said before, the least likely person to go to church in the United States of America is a young professional living in a major urban center. Here's the add-on that I haven't said before. That person grew up in church. That person grew up in church. And many of them think that the Bible is irrelevant or that God is mean and cruel. What is our answer to that question? Because many of those people asking those questions, which God, which we want us, us, those of us who happen to be believers in the Bible, and I know many of us aren't believers in the Bible, and I just want you to hang with me here a second, because what we're getting into here about human nature is absolutely fascinating. But for those of us who believe, we're like big Bible believers like me, the Bible tells us we need to be ready with an answer. That's 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer. Colossians 4.6. In your answer, be kind and wise. 
right? Then you'll be able to answer everyone in the way that you should. Can you quickly and effectively help yourself and anybody who asks you to make sense of why the tree is so relevant and important and transformative in your life? Can you help people? We're getting ready to get into the rib. The woman's created out of the rib. Can you quickly help somebody to see why that is so incredibly relevant right here and transformative? When you begin to see the scripture in a deeper way, not a superficial way, when you begin to see it through the biblical word, you're like, oh my gosh, every single day, it's like exploding off the page to me of how transformative and how powerful it is. But I love what Paul says in 2 Timothy. This is what he says, study and be eager to do your utmost to present yourself to God approved, a workman who has no cause to be ashamed, correctly analyzing and accurately dividing the word of truth. That's what we need to do. We need to see the Bible from the biblical world. One scholar said it this way, says, there's no way we could correctly interpret the Bible, rightly divided, unless we understand the biblical world. And when you do, you won't rob the Bible of its power and of its relevance. You will be just, you'll be accentuating it. And it's just a wonderful thing. So here we go. This is her response in verses two and three. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Two really important things there. Number one, she misidentifies the tree. The tree that was in the middle of the garden is the tree of life, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was the tree. So she misidentifies the tree. We know that tree of life is in the middle. It almost is seen because no location is given about the tree of knowledge, good and evil, as if it's everywhere. It's an everywhere tree almost. It seems like that. But here's the second thing. She exponentially makes God worse. She doubles down. She says, now God says, don't eat of the tree. But she says, oh, no, no, no. God says, don't eat it. Don't even get near it. I'm going to keep you farther away from the fun stuff. I'm going to keep you farther away from all the good stuff. And now here is the goal of the serpent. You can be like God because when you are like God, you don't need God. So they eat of the tree. They eat of this tree of good and bad. And what's fascinating is they don't get any good. All they get is bad. They were promised good. They were reaching for good. How many times have you and I reached for good? How many times somebody said, oh man, it's going to be so fun. Let's go this. And you reached and you did and you experienced and all that. And you're like, I wish I could unexperience that. I wish I could unsee that. I wish I could not have reached and ate that. You know, I read a book by Malcolm Gladwell. I would highly recommend it. It's called Talking to Strangers. And he says many good things in the book, but he talks about drinking, like drinking alcohol and how it's like an epidemic on college campuses. The drinking on college campuses, more and more and more blackout drunk falling down drunk. Well, you got a young person, as many of us did. We went off to college. We're free. We do anything we want because we can do it. And we drink because everybody's having so much fun. So Gladwell said they did a big survey. They asked people, do you like getting blackout drunk? Is that good? Like, no, I hate it. Why'd you do it? Are you going to do it again? Yeah, I probably will. But you hate it. Why are you going to do it? Because everybody's doing it. And everybody looks like they're having fun. They, we look like we're having, we're reaching for the good. And all we do is get something we hate. We can't unsee it. We can't unexperience it. It's like, you're free. 
Do anything you want. Here's what's good. Same thing the serpent's saying. Here's what's good. Reach for it. I wish I'd never reach for it. I reached for the good and all I got was the bad. Some people say, well, they didn't die. Oh, yes, they did die. They died to contentment. They were carefree. They were innocent. They were without shame. And then they reached for that tree and the floodgates of discontentment opened up to them. Now they were irresponsible. Now they're blaming. It's not my fault. It's your fault. They were envious. All kinds of terrible things break out. Oh, yes, they did die. They died to carefree innocence and just living a life that was completely free of discontent. Let's read. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Here's another obvious metaphor because they saw the tree and then they ate and then it says their eyes were opened. So this is why I'm saying they had such a high view of metaphor, obvious metaphor. They weren't blind. They saw the tree. They ate, then the eyes were open. They saw something else. Eyes of them were both open. They realized they're naked. So they sewed fig leaves. They had shame. They went into hiding. They sewed fig leaves together, made coverings for themselves. All right, so let's dissect sin. And I know that word has a lot of baggage, but it tells us so much about human nature and such a good diagnosis of the problem right here in Genesis 2 and 3. Huge, huge help. So I know maybe for some of us, people have said things that when I say that word, you just want to like turn everything off. Please don't. Please don't. Uh, Jesus had a way of talking about sin that brought healing to people. People were drawn to Jesus the way he talked about sin. Like, I'm giving you a diagnosis like a, the best doctor. Sometimes people like me, pastors, church people, Christian people, talk about sin in a way that actually hurts people and drives them from God. Let's have just clear diagnosis from Genesis 2 and 3 on what is sin. First of all, sin is your worst life possible. We are promised good and all we receive is bad. All we receive is misery. We reach for something thinking it's going to be good and we're like, I wish I'd never seen that. I wish I'd never ate that. I wish I never experienced that. Okay. Secondly, sin drags you and everyone around you down. So here's the foundation of sin in Genesis 2 and 3. The S in sin stands for this. It's when you stay focused on what you don't have. That's what sin is. That's where it all starts. That's the threshold of sin. When you and I and human nature does this, when we stay focused on what we do not have. They have every tree in the garden. Serpent says, talking snake, says to them, you can't eat from any tree? Oh, no, no, no. We can eat from any tree. There's just one tree. Okay, they have the tree of life, but they seem completely uninterested in the tree of life. They want the one tree that they did not have. And how many of us say, if I just had, well, if I just had that, I'd be content. If I just had that, if I just had those looks, if I just had that car, if I just had that house, if I just had that spouse, if I just had that job or that career, if I just, if I just, if I just, if I just had that. 
sin begins with us focused on that one thing. Got the entire garden, got every tree, who knows, millions of trees. But I want that one thing. And that's where it begins. Now, the guy that wrote uh, Homo sapiens, best-selling book, Homo sapiens, and then the follow-up book to that, Homo Deus, right? His name is Yuval Harari. He's an Israeli historian. He is an atheist. And he's seen as like this expert. He's come along and he's like, let me sum it all up for you about humanity. Let me look at this broad range of humanity. I'm going to sum it up all for you. Here we go. I'm going to sum it up for you. Humanity has an insatiable appetite and we never have enough. And that is our problem. We are consumers and we never know when to stop consuming. Now, Dr. Harari says that with all the information at his fingertips. He can just Google, he can read, he's got books everywhere, he's massive library, he's got all this tremendous information that he wrote recently in these best-selling books. Thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, the writer of Genesis diagnoses the problem without Google, without massive mountains of books, and he nails it thousands of years ago because he is the best doctor. God's word is the best doctor accurately diagnosing our problem that we must focus on what we do have. And when we focus on what we don't have, we are crossing the threshold into sin. The famous 10 commandments. You get commands, all right? Don't lie. Don't murder. Don't steal. Right? Don't commit adultery. The final one, the 10th one, don't covet. The don't coveting one is focusing on what you don't have and it is the basis of the other ones. The reason that we lie, cheat, and steal and have affairs is because we're focused on what we do not have. We're coveting. I am consumed by that one thing I don't have. And if I just get that one thing, I am going to be content. And that is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, be content with what you have. It's why Paul says in Philippians, whatever is good, whatever is noble, whatever is true, focus on things that are praiseworthy. So instead of being focused, sin is simply this. Instead of being focused on what you don't have, give thanks and praise for what you do have. Focus your mind there. That's the S. Here's the I. I know when to stop. How many times have you said that or you heard somebody else? I know when to stop. I don't have a problem. I know when to stop. I know when to stop. Well, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, which we went through a couple weeks ago, and all the contradictions, because Genesis chapter 1 is like, you're made in the image of God, and go forth, and rule, and have dominion, and go, go, go. Then comes along Genesis chapter 2. And instead of the going forth, it's like pull back and here's a tree and stay away from it. And you need limits. Why? The dual nature of humanity, the divine breath and the dirt. As is said in Deuteronomy, I'm setting before you life and death. Choose life. Choose life. We need limits. I don't know when to stop. I have an insatiable appetite. We need accountability. We need boundaries, guardrails, rules. And I know we bristle under that. But here's the reality that we need to accept. We must have limits. You have somebody who has unrestrained power. There is going to be a problem. Plain and simple. There's going to be a massive... We need restraints. We need limits. If you have a porn problem... Put software on your technology and get a group of people who will hold you accountable. We need rules. We need boundaries because we don't know when to stop. We can't stop ourselves. We need people around us who will say, no, you have an addiction. You need a group of people who love you enough to say, no, you're dating. You need a 
community dating board, which I talked about months ago, who will say, no, you shouldn't go on that date. No, you shouldn't do that thing. How many times have we said, I don't want anybody telling me no. I just want to do whatever I want to do. I know I was meeting with a guy many, many, many years ago. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. And he was giving me his recipe for a great marriage. And he had three rules. Here's one of his rules. He said he told his wife, don't ever tell me no. Now, this happened many, many years ago. He said, don't ever tell me no. And I went home to Kristen. I said, hey, I heard a great rule today. Okay. Don't ever tell me no. And she said, no, 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 no. <laughs> we, we need somebody. Because when we're surrounded by yes people, destruction, disaster, we need limits. So be realistic. You need accountability, so seek it. Put it in place. And when you don't, sin. You're going to sin. There's no doubt. Am I going to sin? Oh, no. You and I are going to sin. That's why everybody needs accountability. A hundred percent of the time. Invite it in your own life. You look at King Solomon. We, and for those of us who read the Bible a lot, he's like the figurehead of wisdom. And yet, his life was a disaster in the end. How is that possible? Because he got to the point where he wasn't, nobody could tell him no. He had this insatiable appetite for more. He was never satisfied and he died a fool. He died a fool because he ignored these right here. He wasn't thankful for what he had, and he would not allow people around him to say no to him. Final point, N. N is there's no need for God. No need. Why does God pick a tree? Think with me for a second. Remember, they're seeking wisdom. The biblical world seeks wisdom, how to live well. What is the deeper meaning? Why the tree? What's a tree look like? Tree is big. It's lofty. It looks independent. It looks like it's self-causing, self-sustaining. It's autonomous. It's lofty. It's lofty. It looks independent. What is it about this knowledge of the tree that God says is so dangerous for all of us? Independent knowledge. Knowledge that I seek to acquire independent from God. Why is human nature have such a powerful pull towards gaining information and knowledge and saying, I don't need God. I'm not dependent upon God. Obedience is dependent human reason. Disobedience is independent human reason. Now, I'm going to tell a couple stories that some of you heard me tell before, but I want to add a little twist to it. So if you heard it before, hang with me. Many years ago, major network in the United States of America, one of the anchors for the network, after President Obama, his inauguration, he was so, this anchor, was so upset because President Obama had his hand on the Lincoln Bible. And he said, that Bible has done nothing for humanity. No good. It's only done evil. It's only done terrible. It's never spoken against slavery. It's never done anything good for human rights. He was just railing, railing, railing. I'm thinking, is he saying this? Oh, my gosh. Well, maybe the Bible is terrible, except for the fact that it was the basis for the abolitionist movement. The Bible was clear historical fact, and the basis for the civil rights movement. Dr. King was a pastor, and he based the civil rights movement on the very word of God. So unless you think the civil rights movement and the bringing down of slavery is evil and that we should still have racism in slavery, well, here's the next one. Uh, in the LA Times, just a number of months ago, a lot of people read this article. 
It was by a sociologist, a PhD in sociology, wrote an article about millions of people are fleeing the church, fleeing from the Bible, fleeing from the church, fleeing from the Bible, and that's a great thing. We should all be radically happy about that because we don't need God. Life is happy. We're happy. We're healthy. We're wealthy. We're all doing great. He's like, and don't talk to me about communist countries because we all know they imploded. We all know that was a terrible place to be, but they didn't have religious toleration, and we do. So don't be concerned about that. And the only thing he forgot to mention was the idea of religious toleration actually came straight out of studying the Bible. We call this plagiarism, everybody. When you take something that somebody has introduced to the world, the Bible, religious toleration, human dignity, civil rights, all of these things, and say, we don't need you. Why? Why are very learned people so possessed? Now, let's talk about church. Because it's not just people who don't go to church or don't believe in the Bible that have this pull towards independence and saying, I don't need you, God. I'm at the prayer wall a number of years ago. I've been praying for a bunch of people. I noticed there was one guy at the top of the, the aisle there waiting. Everybody had, had gone that needed prayer. He came on down. He says, I don't need prayer. I have a question. I want to talk to you about something. I said, okay, what is it? He said, today's my first day. I brought my whole family with me. Today's my first day here. And I just have one question for you. I have to know before I leave because I can't have my family at a church that doesn't teach the truth. So, I've got to know about this one sin. I need you to tell me where you stand. And he mentioned the sin. He mentioned the sin, what it was. I got to know where you stand. And I just said, well, why, I mean, why do you need to know this, this one thing? Why is it so important? He said, because people who practice that sin are continuously sinning. And I said, and you don't? Now the words came out so fast. I was like, I didn't even know. It's just like, boom, it was out there. And boy, it created a lot of tension real quick. I didn't mean to, but it's like one of those things where it just like it came out and then I had to deal with it. So it got tense really quick. And I said to him, I said, are you mean to tell me that you don't have one area of your life that you just kind of overlook? Now, you know, it's not exactly right. And you believe sin is sin because, you know, most Bible people do sin, sin. You mean to tell me you don't have one area of your life that you're just like, I'm okay with it. I'm just going to keep doing it. I'm just going to persistently keep doing it because it's not really that big deal. Here's, here's everybody. We are all church to non-church alike struggle with this powerful pull to be independent from God. We don't need God. And that is sin. And when I easily overlook the sins in my life and I minimize them, but I'm obsessed with the sin of other people, they need God. I am sinning. This is why the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul of all people says he's the chiefest of sinners. He doesn't say you are the chiefest of sinners. He says, I am the chiefest of sinners. Now, I want to conclude a verse that I introduced at the beginning of this. I want to read you the full verse. 2 Corinthians 10, verse number 5. It's a fantastic verse. And think how it connects to the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree that's so lofty. This is what it says. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. What's the lofty? The tree is lofty. It's independent knowledge of God as if I can figure this out. We've never figured it out on our own. We never figured out all people are created equal. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We never figured that. The Bible had to figure it out for us. So he says, we are destroying those arguments that we came to this knowledge by ourselves of every lofty opinion that raised against, that is raised against the knowledge of God. And then he says, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Everybody, I want to say this. If you're not in a discussion group, if you're not participating in Q&As, if you're not in a community group, my community group and talking about these relevant 
transformative points from the scripture. It has been so helpful to me. You've got to get in one to discuss these. We have had some of the best discussions we have ever had in my community group, and you're going to want to get in one to unpack all of this. Let me conclude by saying this, okay? You want to be focused and thankful for what you do have. You want to be very intentional about setting limits and accountability in your own life. And all of us, we want to be very realistic about this very strong human pull, this this, na- this human nature that we have to be independent from God and to claim the truths of God as if they are our own. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much, God, for your word and for your wisdom and for accurately diagnosing our problem. Help us, Lord, to deal with it in Christ's name. Amen.